Good morning, everyone. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word preached and proclaimed, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us and that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. And Lord, as we continue into Advent and um, the remembrance of what your son did for us, but looking forward to the future promise of the second coming, of the return of your Son, and the coming of your kingdom. Lord, I ask that you would help us to meditate on these things and to reorient our lives towards that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've never read uh, the Old Testament, or if you're new to the Old Testament, uh, or if you don't know much about the Old Testament, it's divided into a bunch of books. And so we've talked about that a little bit. It's divided into the Pentateuch. In Hebrew, it's actually called the Tanakh, right? The Torah, the Nebim, the Kethabim. You don't need to always remember that. Uh, but you've got the first five books, and you've got these writings. And then um, you've got kind of um, all these other things, which prophets can sometimes be in, other, other writings can be in too. But uh, in our Old Testament, you've got uh, the prophets divided into major and minor prophets. Major and minor prophets. So the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lamentations, of course. Lamentations is a famous prophet. No. Who wrote Lamentations? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So you've got these prophets, and then you've got the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets. There's my favorite, Hezekiah. I quote him all the time. No. Hezekiah is what I use to justify all things with my wife. Right. Hezekiah says, clean the house. Hezekiah says, no. <laughs> Hezekiah is not a real book. You just throw that out there. So. Uh, he was a king. All right, so, um, so the Old Testament prophets are not widely read by a lot of people, a lot of Christians. You might have read, everyone's read the Gospels, or you've read the Epistles, you've read all kinds of things. But you haven't read, a lot of times, the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because they're not so fun to read. Like if you've tried to read, how many have tried to read straight through the Old Testament prophets? Right here. How many made it straight through the Old Testament prophets? Okay, some of you. How many understood the Old Testament prophets? Okay, a lot less. Like you get through the Old Testament prophets and you're like, I don't understand any of what they're saying. This is kind of crazy. And the reason is because you have to really understand the rest of Scripture before you understand the Old Testament prophets, right? You really have to really understand um, the Old Testament in depth before you get what the prophets are saying. But here's the other thing you really need to know about the Old Testament prophets. They really need to be read alongside Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Most of the prophets are prophesying, coinciding with those books, right? So if you read 1 Kings and Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, you'll read that there are certain prophets that are prophesying in those days. And if you jump over to the prophets, their prophecies are in those days, which means that prophecy in the Old Testament is mostly foretelling and not foretelling. What do I mean by that? What do you think I mean by foretelling and not foretelling? Anybody know?
That's exactly right. They're mostly speaking to the people right then and not telling them what's going to come in the future. And if they are saying what's going to come in the future, they usually mean in this next event. Follow the Lord and this is what will happen. Don't follow the Lord and this is what will happen. And they're calling people to repentance. So primarily in that day, remember the Lord was not indwelling their people. They weren't the church. The Holy Spirit had not come yet. So the prophets were the mouthpiece of the Lord. Priests had a function in the temple for sacrificial stuff and all like that. Rabbis would teach, but the prophets actually brought the words of the Lord to the people. That's what they did. Some of the prophets, we have their writings. Other prophets, we do not have their writings. You see other prophets mentioned in Scripture, we don't have their writings. We do have these writings because they were written down for all people at all times. And that's what you have when you have the prophets. Now, some prophecies, though, are foretelling, and that's what one of our prophecies is this morning. It is foretelling. It tells things that will happen in the future. But all of them are to be read in the context of the Old Testament. Now, one of my bishops, one of my early bishops, he was really well-trained. Bishop Terrence Kelshaw, he's the one that sent me off to seminary, really bright guy. And he used to, I was a youth minister, and I was sitting down, and he came and he sat down during an ordination, and uh, he was listening, and then he got up and he preached, and he was preaching to this old, to the the pastor, and he said, look, I'm going to tell you now, any, when I go to all the churches, I listen to pastors preach. And any pastor worth their salt should be preaching from the Old Testament. He said, almost every pastor I ever hear preaching only preaches the Gospels. And uh, basically, they preach the Gospels because they don't know their Bible or because they're too lazy to preach and study anywhere else. Now, that doesn't mean you only preach, but if they're only preaching the Gospels, that's primarily what they're doing. He said, when I sit down and I hear a priest preaching from the Old Testament, I know they know their Bible, and their people are being well taught. That rattled me, but, it, but I grew up with a dad who read me the Old Testament all the time and taught me. And it always bothered me that I heard so many priests, and they would never cover Old Testament passages. I was like, ding, that's exactly right. Now, I grew up in a great church where they preached Old Testament and New Testament, but when I got on the road, I heard all these priests, and they never once touched the Old Testament, but what they all had in common was they all struggled understanding Scripture. you got to understand the old to understand the new. And they relate. And the, the, the Old Testament in this passage is so rich. It has so much to teach us about the coming of Jesus. And if we don't understand it, man, we really are missing out. So let's dig into Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Now, we really need, I was telling Mike about this, we really need a series to do this, and we're not going to have a series, so I'm just going to skim through it, and we're going to cover it as best we can. Now, Isaiah 11.1 1 says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And so instantly, we're like, what? Why is he talking about a tree? This does not make sense. Isaiah 11.2 says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now remember, every time you see LORD in all caps, we're saying what? Yahweh, or the covenant name. In Old English, it was Jehovah, but it's the same word. The stump of Jesse is another way of saying 
that the child, this child they're talking about, will come from the line of Jesse, right? That's what he's saying. This branch, this offshoot, is going to come from the family of Jesse. And this gives us the first lesson in understanding prophecy. To understand prophecy, read the rest of your Bible, and you'll only really begin to get prophecy if you've been studying it, right? So there's a particular style and formula to Isaiah or to any prophecy, right? That's what we study. The stump of Jesse, then, is in the line of Judah. And we learned about Judah. We learned about the Old Testament, right? We learned about Jacob or Isaac and Jacob, and then we learned about his children, and we learned about Judah. And we know that the Christ child is going to come from the line of Judah. And one of the themes we saw in Genesis was that God chose Isaac, and then he chose Jacob, and then from Jacob he chose Judah, who started out with a big-time sin life, but was transformed pretty dramatically by the Lord over his life into quite the man of God. What's interesting, though, is that when you track the line of Judah, God will continue to choose what seems like all sorts of insignificant people until we get to one of the most famous kings in all of Israel, David. Now, we studied David a couple uh, summers ago, right, in 2 Samuel, and we saw that David, while he's called a really holy guy, is super sinful, right? I mean, super sinful. I don't know how he's called the greatest of the kings when he commits murder and uh, he has like all kinds of problems, and yet he keeps returning to the Lord and returning to the Lord. Now, you would think that when this prophecy starts out, he would say the stump of David, right? That this Christ child would be born in David's line. You would think that he would say the stump of Jacob, the stump of Abraham. You would think that he would say the stump of somebody famous. But here's the thing. God is bringing honor once again to somebody who seems insignificant. He says the stump of Jesse. Why doesn't he say the stump of Boaz? right? Ruth's husband. Why does he pick Jesse? That's kind of odd. Jesse doesn't really, we don't read a ton about him in Scripture. He seems to be insignificant. This is interesting to me, a shepherd from a small town in Israel. Now, this is just like Tamar and Ruth. We, we, we get mentioned Boaz, and he's also insignificant. Later on in Scripture, Joseph is going to raise Jesus, this carpenter. And then we, we have this episode where uh, during the baptism or during, well, during the circumcision of Jesus, we, we run into what? Anna the, and Simeon, right? That's kind of weird. Why do we have that? These two insignificant people, again, when, when Jesus is brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord, we have this, Anna and Simeon, also two relatively insignificant people. And yet they leap, their hearts are leap. You have all of these insignificant people all throughout Scripture that are mentioned and given great honor. And here again, in Isaiah, the Lord gives honor to Jesse. God keeps choosing and honoring these seemingly 
insignificant people in Scripture. But this is the way with God, as Mary tells us. Luke 1, 46 to 48. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Again, God chooses someone who is insignificant. A young virgin, 14 to 16, somewhere in that age, is going to give birth to Jesus. So the story of the line of Jesus in the Old Testament then is the story of this line. And Jesus is, as Isaiah says, the branch of this line. But you can't really understand this if you don't know your Old Testament. If you don't know your Old Testament in Isaiah, then you really don't understand what's going on in the Gospels later on. And here, Isaiah is explaining to us that Jesus is the one who is now going to bear this fruit. And this fruit is going to be tremendous. Now, our prophecy doesn't exactly give us all the names and the details. And this drives a lot of people nuts when they talk about prophecies. So uh, if you're about to go to college or you're going to study with professors, they're going to say all kinds of things like, how could this prophecy be true? It doesn't actually say that Jesus is going to be born here. It doesn't give us his name. It doesn't always give us the exact details of everything. Now, here's the thing about prophecy. There are some vagaries in prophecy. Secularists will say, well, this is proof that it's not enough. When I was in uh, uh, Virginia Tech, I studied religion, and many of my professors wrote a lot of books that seminary students used to use, especially in the more revisionist or liberal seminaries. And um, they would point these kinds of things out as proof that the Bible wasn't true. And so the question is, why doesn't God get more specific? And that is a good question. But consider if God did say that a person named Billy Bob was going to be born in a blue house on December 22nd in the town of Brownsville on the street of blue, what would all of humanity do on that day? Right? Would kings and queens come there and try to interfere? Would somebody try to buy that house or all the houses on the street of blue? How many rich and famous people would try to manipulate history and make it come to pass so that they were there and they were the ones? See, prophecy has some vagaries for a reason. God doesn't give us the exact details because we as a people will always try to manipulate history. Indeed, we see this in the Gospel of Luke. Herod has some of the details and kills an entire village of children trying to kill the Messiah. Isaiah 11.2 then says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is what's going to rest upon this Messiah. So wisdom, understanding, counsel and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord here means respect, um, a healthy fear of the Lord. If you were to see God, you would be terrified, but we're terrified in the way that we are standing before a being who we know could go right? But still loves us, right? You would be terrified before a holy God. We all think of God as, in our culture, as a warm, loving, fuzzy bunny, right? But he is not a warm, loving, fuzzy bunny. He spoke, 
and all that is came to be. If I were to send you to the sun right now, would you be nervous? Because we would be extinguished in a second. And yet God is greater than the sun. All the suns. He spoke and they came to be. Would you be a little bit nervous if you stood in front of a holy God? The fear of the Lord. And so what we're given is that this Messiah is to have the Spirit of God upon him to be filled with the Father's wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and might. Now, this alone shows us something is vastly different about this coming Messiah. This is not Judah, Jacob, or David. Now, maybe he mentions Jesse because Jesse was holier than them, and we can look at David's life and say, okay, well, Dad had to be better than that. But still, the description here cannot even be of him. In our James Bible study on Thursdays, we've been learning something of the nature of the word wisdom. And the statement here, the wisdom of God, is a significant one. If you haven't really studied the word wisdom, you probably think wisdom is just the application of knowledge. And we have learned that wisdom is oh so much deeper. We've studied it through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus. We've gone into Proverbs. Wisdom is profoundly deep, profoundly deep. And we've gone into Proverbs and studied some of the nature of wisdom, but what is interesting here is Proverbs chapter 8 is one of the chapters that really describes wisdom, and wisdom gets personified, meaning it is shown to be a person in this one. And Proverbs 8 speaks of the qualities which wisdom brings. Proverbs 8, 12 to 14. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight and I have strength. The same words that are used in Isaiah. It seems that Isaiah is drawing upon this imagery. Christ is ancient, has all of these qualities that were with God from the beginning. This Isaiah passage looks to draw on the Proverbs passage, or at least describes the same kinds of things. All of the same words in Hebrew are used. Now, Proverbs, excuse me, so there's an eternal aspect to this being that's going to come. There's a power aspect that's going to be, but there is a future aspect to this prophecy that goes beyond Jesus' mission on earth, which is why we read it in Advent and not Epiphany. Isaiah 11, 4, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah eleven six. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf with the lion, and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. So none of these passages describe the Gospels. This is not what happened when Jesus came. Children did not stick their hands in cobra's dens, and lions didn't start chewing grass. None of this happened. In other words, violence didn't leave the earth. What we're described, what's described here is a return basically to Genesis chapter 2, before the fall. Something is restored, and that did not happen 
Because, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus came. And how many of you have seen violence on the earth since that day? Raise your hands. How many of you have committed sins at least once in your life? Raise your hands. So this can't be when Jesus came the first time. Rather, this describes the second coming of Jesus when he who came to us as a child returns as the conqueror to punish the wicked, all who oppose God. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 25. But each in his own orders. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This describes the elimination of sin and death. There will come a time when all this is gone, when Jesus comes again and conquers sin. He's conquered it. When he, when he eliminates sin and eliminates death. That happens at the second coming. And at that time, the lion lays down and chews grass. The child plays over the cobra's den because he can't die. The cobra won't strike. All will be gathered to the mountain. This is what we look forward to at Advent. And this reminds us, brothers and sisters, that this world is not all that there is. We live for something else. What are you living for? That's what this Isaiah passage reminds us. What are you living for? Advent, I told you, is a secondary penitential season. It reminds us to reorient ourselves to Christ, not in the same way that Lent does, to focus on our sins and repent of our sins. It reminds us to reorient our lives to Jesus because of the second coming. We are not citizens of this world. There is another place we are going to be called to, and so we need to be about the Father's business here. Are you sharing the faith? Are you bringing others to Jesus? Are you growing in your faith? Are you in ministry? Are you doing things for the kingdom? We need to be kingdom-minded. And that's what this passage calls us to. Amen?